you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. <clears throat> About every other day you find the nation of Israel in the headlines of the newspaper. Right now they're there because they're building 6,500 houses in East Jerusalem and the Palestinians are claiming that that is their land. Tomorrow it will be another issue, but they continue to be on the center stage of the world scene. And when you think about it, that's pretty amazing. In fact, it's pretty amazing that Israel is here at all. They have survived the numerous attacks over the centuries to annihilate them. And they have survived the melting pot of the ages. All the nations that existed in the time of Israel have long since disappeared. You don't run into people today who are Philistines or Hittites or Amalekites. But that little country that's smaller than the state of New Jersey is still here. And that's not just a coincidence. There's a reason that it's here. And the reason is because there is one more week of years for Israel on God's calendar. Now in Daniel chapter 9, we learn that Daniel was reading from the book of Jeremiah... And he discovered that the captivity would last 70 years. He realized that he had been in Babylon himself almost 70 years. And so he dressed in sackcloth and ashes and began to fast and pray. And his prayer was that God would forgive Israel and take them back to the land. And while he was still praying, Gabriel showed up with the answer. And the answer was far more than Daniel had prayed for. Gabriel tells him in verse 24 that God has decreed 70 weeks for Daniel's people Israel and for Daniel's city Jerusalem until the kingdom. Now we said last week that those 70 weeks represented 70 sevens of years or 490 years. Those 490 years would begin, according to verse 25, at the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, which we said was the decree of Artaxerxes recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. And that 490 years is divided into three sections. The first is seven sevens, or 49 years. And at the end of that 49 years, we're told, at the end of verse 25, Jerusalem would be completed. And it was. The second section was 62 sevens, or when you add that to the first seven, 483 years. And at that point, verse 25 says, Messiah would come as prince. And we showed last week how that that came out to the very day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey being hailed as king. The very day we celebrate as Palm Sunday. Now, if you weren't here last week, you're probably going to be a little confused today, so you might want to get the tape. If you were here last week and you're still confused, maybe I ought to get the tape. We're going to pick up in the middle of this prophecy at verse... 26 this morning. It says, then after the 62 weeks. Now, the 62 weeks, when attached to the 7 weeks, is actually 69 weeks. So in total here, he's saying, after the 69 weeks. Now, what would you expect to come after the 69 weeks? The 70th week. But that's not what we find in verse 26. We don't come across the 70th week until we get to verse 27. And so verse 26 is an interim. It's a gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. And we're told in verse 26 that three things will happen in this gap. 
First of all, Messiah will be cut off. Notice verse 26. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, if you were reading this sometime during the 483 years of the first part of this prophecy, and you read that Messiah would be cut off, what would you think that that would mean? You say, well, I'd probably think that means he would be ostracized from his people, or, or maybe, you know, we use that term, you're cut off in traffic. Maybe that's what it's talking about. Well, let me show you what it's talking about. Turn to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 11. Genesis 9, 11, God is speaking to Noah. Here's what he says. And I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. So what does cut off mean? Well, what happened to the people in the flood? They were killed. So to be cut off means to be killed. So Daniel chapter 9 is not simply saying that Messiah will be ostracized. It's saying that Messiah will be killed. But it's even more specific than that. Let me show you another verse. Exodus chapter 31 and verse 14. Exodus 31, 14. Therefore you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you, Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, and whoever does work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now, he says the same thing twice using two different phrases. One is put to death, the other is cut off, which means they're synonymous. So to be cut off means to be put to death, but what I want you to see here is that he's talking about someone who is put to death for breaking the law, someone who is executed. And there are verses throughout the Old Testament that say that same thing. When you break the law, the result is you are to be cut off. You are to be executed as a criminal. So when we come to Daniel chapter 9, what's he saying here? Messiah is going to be put to death by execution. He is going to be put to death as a criminal. Now, when you put that with other prophecies in the Old Testament like Psalm 22 that gives us a detail-by-detail detail description of the crucifixion. In fact, it tells us the very words Jesus would say on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It tells us that they would gamble for his clothes. When you put that alongside prophecies like Isaiah 53 that say he will be led like a sheep to the slaughter, you have to wonder how Israel missed him. They were told the very day he would come, they were told that he would be put to death as a criminal, and they still missed him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. They couldn't perceive of a crucified Messiah. Even the disciples had a tough time with that. Remember in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus explained to the disciples that he was going to die, Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him. Messiahs don't die. But you see, here in Daniel chapter 9, we're told way ahead of time that he would die as a criminal. Now notice the rest of verse 26. It says, he will be cut off and have nothing. Now that's kind of an obscure Hebrew phrase, 
I think the King James translates it, not for himself, which would be true. He was cut off. He died not for himself. He died for us. But I think the better translation of that phrase is not for him, or I'm sorry, with nothing for himself. So what Daniel is saying is the Messiah will come, they will execute him, and give him nothing. All those things that are due to him as king, he will not receive. He didn't get any honor. He didn't get any praise. He didn't get any respect. He didn't get any love. He didn't get any acceptance. John says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so the first thing that would happen in this gap between the 69th and 70th week is that Messiah would be killed and get nothing. Second thing that would happen is that Jerusalem will be destroyed. Verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Now, who is the prince who is to come? Well, that's the same one we read about in Daniel chapter 7 called the little horn. It's the same one who's referred to in Daniel chapter 11 as the king who will do as he pleases. There are two princes in this passage. There is Messiah the prince, and there is this one called the prince who is to come. Now, if you notice verse 26, it's not talking about what he will do. It's talking about what his people will do. He is still to come, but we're told here about what his people are, gonna, are going to do. Now, who are his people? Well, back in chapter 7, you'll remember that Daniel had a dream. He dreamed about four beasts. Those four beasts, we're told, were the four world empires that would come on the scene. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7, we're told that the little horn would come out of the ten horns on the fourth beast, which means the little horn, the Antichrist, will come out of a ten-kingdom confederacy of the revived Roman Empire in the future. So who are his people? His people are the Romans. So verse 26 is saying that after Messiah is killed, the Romans will destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, Jesus died in 32 A.D. You know what happened less than 40 years later? The city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground. By whom? By the Romans. The Jews always hated the Romans because of their presence in Jerusalem. There was a certain factor in, in Israel known as the Zealots, and they gradually grew to have more and more open protests. In fact, they would carry daggers around in their cloaks, and if they could find a Roman soldier in the night, they would slay him. In 66 A.D., there was a wholesale revolt. The zealots overthrew the Roman garrison in Jerusalem and took over the city. They took the city back for themselves. But in doing so, they essentially declared war on Rome. And so in 68 AD, Vespasian, the Roman general, moved his army south through Galilee and came up against Jerusalem. And just when he was about to besiege the city of Jerusalem, he was recalled to Rome to be emperor. And so he put his son Titus in charge. And Titus came against Jerusalem with 
2,000 soldiers. They surrounded the city and they built a huge mound around it so that no one could get out. And when anyone tried to escape, they were captured and nailed to crosses in front of the city. In fact, Josephus says they killed no less than 500 Jews a day. And he tells us that there was not a tree standing within 12 miles of Jerusalem because they cut them all down to make army artillery and battering rams and ladders and mostly crosses to crucify those Jews on. And those who stayed in the city faced the other option, which was dying of starvation. Josephus lived at this time. He was a Jewish historian. In fact, he was taken captive in Galilee when the troops came down. And this is what he says was taking place in the city of Jerusalem. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it, and those that were hardy and well were deterred from doing it by the great multitude of those dead bodies, and by the uncertainty there was how soon they should die themselves. For many died as they were burying others, and many went to their coffins before that fatal hour was come. And Josephus goes on to tell us that when the stench got unbearable from all those dead bodies, they began to take them and just throw them over the wall and stack them up outside the walls of Jerusalem. Josephus says, there was a deep silence and a kind of deadly night that seized upon the city. And finally, Titus torched Jerusalem and burned it to the ground. And what Jesus predicted in Luke 19, 44 came true. They didn't leave one stone upon another. And they carried out 115,000 corpses through the gate. And those who survived were sold into slavery. Warner Keller describes it this way. He says, Jerusalem was extinguished in an inferno which is almost unparalleled in history. And that's why we read what we do in verse 26. It says, its end will come with a flood. Now, what does that mean? We'll turn over to Daniel chapter 11. We'll see how that word's used. Daniel chapter 11, verse 10. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through. Verse 22. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered. Verse 26. And those who eat his choice food will destroy him and his army will overflow. You see, to be flooded is, is, a, is a battle term. It means that people are swept away like a flood. And that's what verse 26 says would happen to Jerusalem. And it happened in 70 A.D third thing that would happen in this gap is that Israel will suffer war and desolations till the end. Notice the end of verse 26. It says, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. 
the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD wasn't the end of Israel's troubles. Shortly thereafter, 10,000 Jews had their throats slit in Damascus. Many died as gladiators in the Roman games. In another uprising in 115 AD, 985 towns in Palestine were destroyed by Rome and half a million Jews were slain. In 1096 AD, we had the first crusade. They set out to regain the Holy Land from the Muslims. They were afraid that when they got the Holy Land back, the Jews would claim it as their homeland. And so as they went through Europe, they slaughtered all the community of Jews that they could find. And that's why the Crusades are so, I guess, disgusting to the Jews. Because in the name of Christ, people actually slew the Jews. The Second Crusade happened about 50 years later, same kind of slaughter. In 1290, Edward I ordered the Jews to leave England. 1236, the same thing happened in France. In fact, in one little town, they took 3,000 Jews, laid them on the ground, took horses and trampled them to death. In 1348 and 49, during the time of the Black Death, the Jews were accused of poisoning the wells that led to that plague. And so the Jews fled to two countries, Poland and Russia which set the stage for what happened in, 19, in the 1940s that I don't have to tell you about. And that is that six million Jews were slaughtered by Adolf Hitler. That's what's described here at the end of verse 26. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Do you know something? In 1914, 900,000 Jews went back to their land. And by 1948, they had, again, a charter as a nation. What's happening? They're getting set up. Set up for what? Verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Now, who's the he? Well, the nearest antecedent is back in verse 26, and that's the prince who is to come. We're told in verse 26, he will come. Now in verse 27, he comes. And what does he do? He makes a covenant with the many. Who's the many? That's the Jews. How long? One week. Seven years. So you see, verse 26 is a gap. After the 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. That happened five days later. Jerusalem would be destroyed. That happened 38 years later. And Israel will see war and desolations. That's been the story of their history for the last 1,900 years. And so we are living in the gap. When will the gap end? It will end when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. Now, don't be surprised that there's a gap here because there are gaps throughout Old Testament prophecy. For instance... One verse we're familiar with at Christmas time is Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. You see a gap there? A child came, a son was given, but we're still waiting to see the government on his shoulders. There's a gap there. And that gap gave the Old Testament prophets struggles trying to understand what it was the Spirit of God within them was saying. 1 Peter chapter 1 says they couldn't figure out 
why they were writing about the sufferings of Messiah and the glories of Messiah because it didn't fit together in the same person. How could he be a suffering servant and a glorified king at the same time? And the answer is, there's a gap. He came the first time as the suffering servant. He will come the next time as the glorified king. You see, that gap really represents the time that we live in now, which is the church age. This counting of 490 years began at the decree. Seven sevens later, Jerusalem was rebuilt completely. Sixty-two sevens later, Christ came into Jerusalem and presented himself as king. That's where we had the cross. And now we've got a big parenthesis in God's program. And in that parenthesis is the church. Paul calls it in the New Testament a mystery. Because they didn't know about it in the Old Testament. It's been revealed to us in the New Testament. And then after that parenthesis, there's one more week left. And that week will begin when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. It will begin when he comes as the deliverer of Israel. He will bring peace to that nation that never seems to be able to find peace. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 11 describes this day and says Israel will feel so secure that they will be living in unwalled cities. What's a wall for? Protection. They will sense that they're secure and don't need any protection. Nobody's going to attack them. Read on in verse 27. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. He'll make a covenant with them, but he's a liar. And halfway through his covenant, he'll break the covenant. Now, what's halfway through seven years? Three and a half years. Which in the New Testament describes what's called the Great Tribulation that last half of the seven years. Now, midpoint of this seven-year period, he's going to stop sacrifice and grain offerings. Now, before you can stop sacrifice and grain offerings, what do you have to have? Sacrifice and grain offerings. And there are no sacrifices and grain offerings taking place in Jerusalem today. You know why? No temple there. So what is this passage telling us? Duh. Is that the word? there's going to be a temple. And this is an exciting passage because in verse 25 it says the temple would be rebuilt. Verse 26, it'll be destroyed. Now in verse 27, it's back again. After the gap or sometime during the gap, the temple's going to come back. That may even be part of the covenant the Antichrist makes with Israel is that he will help them rebuild the temple. But in the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to stop the whole thing. And then notice on in verse 27. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. And that's what Jesus referred to in Matthew 24 as the abomination of desolation. Most abominable thing that could happen, which for the Jews was typically idolatry. And what's the idolatry on this occasion? What is the Antichrist going to set up as an idol? Himself. Look at Revelation chapter 13 real quickly. Coincides with this passage. Revelation 13. Written 600 years later. Verse 4. And they worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast, that's the Antichrist, 
And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? They're worshiping him. Notice verse 5. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, how long is 42 months? Three and a half years, half of seven. Verse 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And there's the desolation. And then if you look over at verse 14, it says, verse 15, And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. There's going to be an image set up of this man, and whoever doesn't worship him will be put to death. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, He will take his seat in the temple, displaying himself as being God. You say, well, how long is this going to last? Well, we just read it's going to last for three and a half years. But notice what it says at the end of verse 27 of Daniel chapter 9. Here's how long it will last. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured upon the one who makes desolate. When will it end? It will end when the one who makes desolate, which is the prince who is to come, is destroyed. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 19 at the end. It says that Christ is going to come out of heaven on a white horse against the armies of the Antichrist, and he's going to take him, the beast, and throw him alive into the lake of fire. You say, well, you know, this passage in Daniel chapter 9 kind of ends here with desolations and destruction. It's kind of a downer, you know. I mean, you come through this thing and here it ends on kind of a down note. Well, when we look carefully, it actually doesn't end at the end of verse 27. It ends in verse 24. Because in verse 24 it says, 70 weeks have been decreed, and after the 70 weeks, what happens? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to steal, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy one. After the seven week, 70 weeks, what happened? The kingdom. And so he's telling us that there's only one more week. One more week of years until the kingdom. And that week we call the tribulation. Now I know what you're thinking. You've talked here about the Jews and what's going to happen to them. What's going to happen to us? Well, we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are going to be caught up to be with the Lord. Now, a lot of Christians debate on when that's going to happen. And a lot of Christians debate on whether we're going to go through the tribulation. I believe that that rapture, which we call it, is going to happen at the end of the parenthesis, before that seven weeks. And a couple of the reasons are right here in this passage. Because as we've looked at this passage and as he's described the 70th week of Daniel, it's all about Daniel's people Israel. And it's all about Jerusalem. You see, Israel has had 69 of their weeks. They've got one left. We're not a part of that week. That's a week when God will deal with Israel. And when you come to Revelation, you find that the 144,000 witnesses in the book of Revelation are from where? They're from the 12 tribes of Israel. In that day, Israel, in fact, it says in Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved in that day. They will become the evangelists to take the gospel to the Gentiles in the tribulation period. That's a time when God will be purifying his people through all the tribulation 
to ready them for the kingdom of God. And let me give you a second reason that comes out of this passage, and that is that if we, the church, were going through the tribulation, we would know that Jesus couldn't come back until what happened? The Antichrist came. So we would spend all our time looking for the Antichrist. But see, the truth is, we're going before that. So we can spend all our time looking for who? Looking for Jesus. You know, most people don't have a clue what's going to happen next in this world. Not even the people that are running it. And that's why everybody's so worried today. And yet a passage like this reveals to us God's plan for the future of the world. He's shown it to us. Little me and little you. We know what's going to happen in the future. Now, why did God tell us that? Well, not so we could be arrogant. Not so we could impress our friends. He tells us that really for one reason. Peter gives it to us in 2 Peter 3.11. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since you know what's coming, it ought to affect today. See, God tells us what's going to happen tomorrow so that something will happen today. And that is that we would be holy and godly. As Brian and Julia sang earlier, we would say, this world has nothing for me. My eyes are on something better. 